the world of software moves faster than the laws that regulate it. When software companies do get regulated by the legal system, that regulation is often enforced unevenly among different companies. Software continually presents the legal system with new requirements. Consumer data privacy needs to be enforced on a granular level. Software developers need a system of protecting their intellectual property. When a company becomes dominant, our legal system needs to scrutinize that company for potential antitrust violations. Micah Kesselman is a lawyer specializing in software IP prosecution, but he does study a wide range of intersections between law and software. Prior to becoming a lawyer, Micah studied computer science. He joins the show to discuss a range of issues at the intersection of software and the law, including GDPR, software patents, and self-driving cars. These are topics that we will cover in more detail in the future, but it was great to have Micah bring the perspective of a lawyer to the show. And we would like to do more shows on the intersection of software and X, things like software and biology, software and chemistry, software and society. If you've got ideas for these kinds of shows, please send me an email. I would love to hear what your thoughts are. It's jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I hope you enjoy this episode. Micah Kesselman, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, Jeff. Great to be here. You are a lawyer, and I actually met you at the Software Engineering Daily meetup in Boston, which was an interesting event. There were a lot of different people from different backgrounds there. But actually, before that, we had gotten acquainted on Slack and over email because you're a listener of the show. You actually have a background in computer science, but you work in law. How did you get into law from computer science? Yeah, so I actually entered into law before I got into computer science. Previous to law school, I had been kind of on a political science track to into grad school to do post-grad poli-sci type work, which involves a lot of sort of modeling and quant-based analysis. I ended up going into law school, wanting to work with software companies primarily, and realized that uh, it would be helpful to have a solid grounding in the actual engineering and science of computer science as well if I wanted to work with the software companies um, to give sort of a holistic offering of advice. So I ended up going back to undergrad at night or at one point during the day and then law school at night at the same time and finished them both in tandem with each other. And now a few years later, I'm mostly doing uh, patent prosecution work and a little bit of corporate and, and policy advice and stuff like that as well and some due diligence stuff. Now, I think of software and law as both infinitely ambiguous domains. <laughs> and if you cross them, does it become even more infinitely ambiguous? I'm not sure what the what the right formal measurement there would be, but I think I get what you're saying. Yeah. It's um yes, I think that when you're working with software, I think and this is probably true in any any domain that's rapidly advancing and changing all the time. There's always a certain amount of flex and particularly in our U.S. legal system, there's a certain amount of flex in the law and, and ambiguity associated with that. And then I think that, um, you know, in software, at all fronts, you, be it if you're a startup, just, you know, bootstrapping yourself into your first Series A or whatever you need to do to get financing. Or if you're a, a long-established, you know, mega corporation that's been 
in the software industry for, for decades, you never know how your software practices are going to interact with the laws it changes. And you also don't know how the law is going to change <laughs> when it interacts with your software practice and your, your dev pipeline. So yeah, it can get pretty ambiguous while you're navigating through all sides of it. So I guess you can say that about any field with, if you have enough experience, and enough depth, you will reach, you know, with probably within eight months, the realization that, the, oh my gosh, there's so much subjectivity, so much undiscovered territory, just becomes like that. So a lawyer is a knowledge worker job, much like a developer. And I have been a developer before. You have lots of tools to improve your workflow. Does a lawyer have access to similar tools? How does the workflow of a lawyer compare to a software engineer? I'd imagine that they're quite different. <laughs> so it's going to vary firm to firm and practice to practice. And I would think that you know, it's the same way in software too, depending on what specific domain you work in and what sort of level of corporate you work in. Software engineering is probably varies in workflow as well. But there's a lot of room for technologies focused smart workflow management and task management. So, you know, one of the things I use personally that I don't see a whole lot of other attorneys use, but you know, I, I use Trello a lot for my own <laughs> for my own personal sort of docket and, and managing my own projects and cases. And most of what we do use in the legal field tends to be sort of I don't want to say ad hoc but it's not... It's not specifically for lawyers. From, yeah, it's not designed from first principles, specifically for legal practice workflow. I mean, there's more and more technology like that out there, but at the moment, that's there's slim offerings. So Yeah, this is like when we did that show about Atrium with Justin Kahn. That's what he was saying, is there's like... Some lawyers will use Asana or use Trello, and that's about the limit of the sophistication, like that in spreadsheets. And that's like cutting, that's like a cutting edge law firm right there. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you have, you know, if you have an associate come in who knows Excel really well and can just put together a bunch of formulas, uh, that alone will blow the minds of the partners at that firm half the time. So, yeah, there's quite a bit of room for improvement in workflow software. Yeah. So I want to get into some issues around the intersection of law and software, because I think you're well-equipped to discuss them. And I've been wanting to do a show on GDPR for a really long time. People have asked for it. I actually have not been able to find a great guest for it. So maybe, I don't know, if somebody out there has gotten deeply familiar with GDPR, they can send me an email. But I do want to ask you about it. So maybe you could just give your perspective on GDPR. What is GDPR? Why was it put in place? Sure. So GDPR has actually been in the works for a while now, right? I mean, it was it was it's just going to go into effect here this month, but we've known about this for quite a bit of time. And before that, there were the I believe the, the data directives in the EU that were sort of the, the proto GDPR, which weren't as enforceable. And so I'm going to use a lot of sort of uh, abstractions in this discussion because this because this is not my primary practice area. Also, I'm going to give the quick disclaimer of I'm not providing anyone with legal advice and not setting up any sort of attorney-client privilege. So, you know, if you have real specific questions about GDPR or any sort of legal issues, please get an attorney. You're welcome to contact me and we can talk about it later, but I am not providing anyone legal advice. So uh, with that said, the necessary disclaimer is put in there. Yeah, the GDPR has three main focuses, really. So you have a so there is this legal uh, practice focus for you know in-house counsel and how your contracts work and how you communicate with your customers and users 
or the, the people who you have data on. Uh, then there's the aspect of it for what you do with the data. There's the engineering uh, pipeline and, and data pipeline workflows that you need to have comply with the GDPR. And then there's even this aspect of having how you interact with your own vendors and uh, services that you contract out, because at the end of the day, you might be responsible for what they do with the data you give them. And you need to be uh, capable of being responsible for that, uh, for their actions. And, you know, when you, specifically if you have an in-house counsel or a general counsel at your company, you need to make sure that they contemplate that and any agreements you have with the vendors you use. But with that said, the, the focus of GDPR is really to provide transparency of how data is being used and to tighten the relationship between, again, this is sort of my view of it, but tighten that relationship between average citizen, your person, and the data about them, their data, to make it so that, you know, data about you is something that is yours and yours alone, not you know, something that someone else can own in, in lieu of you. Does that make sense at all? Or It does. It does. And so what's unfortunate about this is that lots of companies have to change their privacy policies. They have to make engineering implementations to comply with GDPR. It's unfortunate, but if you're being realistic about it, it is kind of nice that we're in a sense running these experiences. So like when Oren Hoffman came on the show recently, we talked a little bit about this. We talked about China versus the EU versus the US, and you can imagine a continuum of privacy regulations. In the EU, it's the most constrained. In the US, it's somewhere in between with a lot of ambiguity and people having very mixed feelings about how they feel about privacy. And then in China, it's sort of like, Fee, you know, well, I guess China is kind of on a. You would have to have a, at a third axis there because it's like maybe private to the in the scope of like consumers to each other or consumers to businesses and businesses to businesses. But the government gets to see all of it and sort of have access to all of it, or at least have control over quickly changing policies over all of it. So that you know, Oren argued that this would add to a, or create a continuum where the EU will probably have the least innovation, but it might have the most, you know, some of the most interesting debates and discussions around privacy policy. China will just be forging ahead and have the most aggressive utilitarian mergers between data and innovation with privacy sort of like kicked to the side. And then the US will be somewhere in between. Do you think that's an accurate depiction? Right, yeah, and I, I actually recall that episode, and I that sort of has carried with me as I've looked more and more into GDPR and its impact, um, in particular on you know the machine learning related spaces. So, yeah, I think that that's probably a fair estimation of how things are going to go. That you're going to see a lot of interesting sort of sort of machine learning and AI related tech coming out of China, and that's also happening in tandem with the fact that you know China has stated that the Chinese government has stated that they want to take an aggressive stance on fostering machine learning and AI. So aside from a little bit uh, freer use of data sets and, and uh, consumer data, uh, they have a whole host of other you know incentives that are going to be probably rolled out, I'd imagine, to incentivize and hasten AI and machine learning uh, development. I'm hesitant to say that we're not going to see innovation come out of the EU. I mean, there 
the EU has produced some of the most interesting innovations in machine learning and data science that we've seen in the last, you know, few decades. So I don't think that that's DeepMind, right? Didn't DeepMind come out of the EU? Right. So like that, and that's a cultural thing, I think, to a degree too. It's a, it's a, an academic and research culture that's not going to disappear just because of the GDPR, or at least not overnight. So I, I wouldn't take like a, a super pessimistic view that it's, you know, all of a sudden, you know, software and, and data science in, in the EU is dead because of GDPR. There are some things in the GDPR that, you know, I do find concerning and I'm curious of how it's going to get sorted out in the future. And we'll just have to wait and see. So, you know, there's these, there's a requirement that you have to, for any automated decision, you have to report the logic and to an understandable degree of, of how the decision <laughs> was made. So, you know, when you're talking about these deep neural networks, and then you bring on another layer of learned architectures on top of that, I'm not entirely sure that you can sensibly report anything, uh, you know, from that. I mean, sure, you can say like, oh, look at all these nodes that lit up. Cool. But how the hell are you going to know what this node means out of the thousands of, you know, nodes and layers in your in your neural net? So I don't know. how th- That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Or if you're being, you could be A-B tested also, like there could be multiple different policies being applied to different people and... Uh, you know, that could be interpreted as discriminatory. Oh, yeah. And I th- and I think the one thing to keep in mind is that at the end of the day, too, there, there's a certain amount of common sense that is being wrapped up into this. You know, everyone's freaking out about the penalties, for example. And you have those two tiers of the penalties, the percentage, I think it's 4% or 2% between tier one and tier two off of, you know, total revenues and then or uh, however many million euro fine, whichever is greater, those are maximum penalties. And there's specific language in the GDPR that talks about other factors to consider that will reduce and impact the fine. Because at the end of the day, there has to be room for common sense and flex in this because you're having rules and regulations run up against, you know, very rapid technological development that's developing. And frankly, you know, along vectors that we wouldn't have considered possible or likely even 10 years ago. So, you're not going to see any sort of behaviors out and out prohibited, specific behaviors. You're going to see perhaps strong modulating influence on how you interact with consumers in particular. And, you know, you brought the A-B testing. You know, part of that is just a lot of GDPR compliance is going to just come down to keep better track of your data. Like, you know, and that, that's easier said than done. I get that, <laughs> especially when you're dealing with however many different data sets across however many distributed databases doing who knows what and that can be very difficult, even for a small company. But that's really the crux of it is, you know, keep track of your data, where your data is sourced from, and be able to, you know, manipulate it when you need to be able to transfer it out, you know, if you need to transfer to a different service, and be able to uh, just purge it out of the system, which, again, easier said than done. But I think that for companies starting now, when they can start developing from first principles along those lines, that's not going to be as hard. It's going to, it's going to be hard and it is hard and has been hard for, you know, uh, larger companies or very data focused outfits, I, without a doubt. And that's just, it, that, that sucks. <laughs> there's, there's no real good way of getting around it. It just, 
it sucks and it's expensive and it's 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 frustrating. If you're Google or Amazon, you have to be very concerned about this. You do have to put in place some serious institutional rigors around that data protection. If the IRS audits you, they're going to find something wrong with how you're doing accounting. If you have if you have anything sufficiently complicated, they're going to find something that you have done wrong and they can pursue you if they want to. So they have to sort of prioritize it based off of how much money they're going to make. What I wonder is like similarly, is it going to be the case with the GDP? are they only going to pursue the people who have made the most money like the Googles and the Amazons in contrast to like software engineering daily you know I read an article recently it was like if you're a media company you need to be worried about GDPR like software engineering daily has a has a platform where you can log in and you're sharing data and we, I don't think we have a term we definitely don't have a terms of service in place that complies with GDPR so like do I need to be worried or is it really just the Googles and the Amazons? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that any sort of large administrative <laughs> oversight like this, it's going to have to prioritize the high impact targets over others. Because, I mean, there's only so many people and so many man hours that you can throw at these things. So, And there's so many potential cases to, to pursue. So, yeah, I mean, you know, your bigger outfits, you know, your Googles, oracles, whatever, are going to have, are going to be the ones that are going to need to be the most on guard about it, uh, for sure, just because they're they're clearly your your biggest impact target. One, from, you know, the, the uh, purely fiscal calculation, but also just, you know, when Google gets sued, that makes news. <laughs> that disseminates information into the, the sort of popular culture and the zeitgeist right off the bat without much work. It's a high impact, high value target for sure. You know, and smaller companies should still, you still want to comply with the, you know, all the laws and rules that you're expected to comply with. So I think if you put efforts to comply, you know, reasonable efforts and you do comply, you're not going to really have anything to worry about. But I, I don't want to sit, sit here and say like, oh yeah, you're trying to make a recommend making a calculated bet against the odds of someone coming after you. Because this is true for every industry, right? I mean, and for every sort of administrative oversight, you look at, you see this, you know, with ICOs and, and uh, the SEC, right, is another example. You know, not every single one is going to be gone after, but every single one should definitely try and comply with the requirements. So there are certain like low hanging fruit for sure that it's easy to comply with. You know, you said you meant, you know, stuff like terms of service and just clearly communicating to your customers what you're doing with any data you collect and what data you're collecting. Um, if you start doing anything interesting with that data, sending out a holler to all of your, to everyone whose data that you have to let them know what's going on, stuff like that. I mean, just clear reporting and communication, which is what I think just good business in general. But, you know, that's really one of the big key factors in complying with regulation. And that I don't think is as hard to do as some people make it out to be. I think in particular, the GDPR, there's a lot of fear mongering going on, to be quite honest, right now, among probably among attorneys, more so than anyone else. You know, it's consulting work. And that's not to say that people should be aware of it and trying to, you know, keep abreast of it and comply. And one of the best ways to know what you need to do or what you should be aware of, at least, is, you know, there's the, uh, and I've consulted these a bunch of times, the Article 29 Working Party, which arose out of the previous data directives and now is focused a lot on just sort of explaining the rules of the GDPR and what you need to do to comply and giving you hypotheticals and examples and, and whether or not 
those hypotheticals would be in compliance. And just looking at the, the working party guidelines, that's really helpful. And you can look through that. And it's usually broken down in pretty understandable language. It's not in legalese. It's meant to be approachable by your average day-to-day person, which is another part of uh, the regulations, which, you know, which is something I'm in favor of, actually, is which is, gets to communicating through your terms of service and user agreements and consent forms in understandable human speak and not lawyer speak, <laughs> which is a good thing to strive towards. Totally. More explainers, more wikis. Right. Yeah. Exa- wikis. You know, I, I would love to see a future one day and some states have tried for it, I think, and it never has pa- panned out to have, you know, just sort of standardized contract language, uh, a contract schema really, so that it's just easy to read through and parse out. And even if it's not necessarily immediately understandable by your average layperson, uh, you could develop utilities to parse through it and explain it in sort of some sort of lay speak and understanding that makes sense to people, because it'd be in a schema, it'd be standardized. There should be a law that any change to the legal system, the lawmakers have to fund the creation of a two-minute YouTube explainer of that change to the law. (laughs) Yeah, if I had it my way, it'd be anytime you propose any sort of legislation or legislative change, you have to also have a inline citations to sort of peer-reviewed academic support for what you're what you're proposing. But I don't foresee that happening anytime soon, unfortunately. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? Yeah. Okay. Well, other stuff I want to talk to you about. So we should definitely do another show on GDPR at some point in the future. Maybe like an implementation show, like somebody who works at a big like insurance company or something and had to implement GDPR. I would love to do that show. And yeah, I think that's, I think one of the big takeaways from any sort of discussion about GDPR is that a lot of it's going to be fact specific and situation specific, you know, depending on your specific data flow pipeline, that's really what it comes down to. And really you're, and this is sort of true generally, but specifically in this regard, you know, your, your corporate counsel, your in-house, or even just your consulting attorneys should be able to sit down with, uh, if you have a data engineer or a data science team or whomever, or even just your sysadmin, and understand how data is being processed and, and going through the system, be able to sort of reproduce that explanation in their own <laughs> in their own terms so that they can advise accordingly. That's what it comes down to, is how you're taking in, processing, and pushing out data. And these days, that... I mean, you just did a show recently on, you know, data engineering as, as a specific field now. That can be a really complicated process, but it sort of behooves any attorney consulting a client either uh, as in-house or as uh, just as a private practice coming in to understand that pipeline. Okay, so you are in patent prosecution. This is yes. a totally different topic. Sure. What does that mean? Tell me about the a day in the life of a patent prosecutor who is focused on the intersection of law and software. Sure. So I would say depending on projects, I do anywhere between 50 to 80% of my day-to-day practice is patent prosecution. And the rest will be, a lot of it's actually, I do a lot of work with um, post-grant stuff. And so actually, you know, challenging patents in some cases or helping with uh, litigation matters. But even then, a lot of it boils down to sitting down with the subject technology and you know the disclosures that I'm given and just tr- making sure that I understand how things work, not necessarily from brass tacks, because that doesn't necessarily have to be the case for, for all your patents, but at least how the, the operative technology works that we're really interested in. So a lot of 
<laughs> diving into fields that I have some familiarity with or I'll have a familiar with a core field, like, you know, on the machine learning side, I'll have certain familiarities with it. But depending on the domain that it's in, uh, all of a sudden I have to start learning about terminology and, and specifics related to, say, um, I, don't, I don't know, the oil and gas industry or something. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of exploration of resources on that front. So that's, that's sort of the day-to-day of, of a patent prosecutor. And then, you know, drafting the patent and putting together figures and explanatory drawings uh, so that when it's filed, the patent office can look at it and understand what's going on. And putting together claims that are to the greatest benefit that we can get for our client. And, you know, this is where a lot of, I think, misunderstanding and angst maybe (laughs) comes in from various fields about just patents in general, because, you know, as a patent prosecutor. Yeah, some people hate patents. Like, if you, I bet if you polled Hacker News, if they were, (laughs) you know, first of all, they would boil it down to an inappropriately simple question, like, are you in favor of software (laughs) patents? Thumbs up or thumbs down? How many thumbs down? Thumbs up or thumbs down? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it'd be 80%, 85% thumbs down. And as you point out in an email to me recently, like there is a gradient of, of IP yeah. uh, protection. You know, you've, you've got patents, copyright, trademarks, trade secrets. But you know there are so many people who are vociferously against software patents. Give the case in favor of software, software IP protection. Sure. So software, just generally speaking, is sort of an odd duck, right? Because it's protected by copyright in its sort of literal sense where you just, you know, copy and paste something from one source to another that's, you know, infringing the copyright. And then uh, from the sort of systems and methods and methodology approach, it also can be protected under patent law as well. And then not getting into the whole issues with trade secrets and employment agreements and stuff like that. But that, you know, it's also falls under trade secret law pretty commonly as well, too. Specific parts of it. And I think it's important to understand that, you know, when you have a trade secret, a trade secret is basically the antithesis of a patent, right? A patent is structured so that it puts ideas and technology and innovations out there into the public record, even if it's controlled for a period of time. Well, trade secrets sort of are designed to keep things out of the public discourse. The case for... Patents, I think, is it's important to understand that, you know, the majority of patents actually don't really get used very often. (laughs) Whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, it's different. We have a whole discussion about making patents more appraisable and browsable and and useful for um, sort of licensing purposes and actually being used and interacted with between patent owners. But that's a different, (laughs) it's a very long discussion, a very different discussion. But the majority of patents basically just sit there and don't do anything. I think it's something like over 90% that aren't used in litigation, aren't used in licensing or anything like that. They're primarily used as you know financial instruments and to create a portfolio of assets that when you go to, say, uh, VCs, you can show them that you have you know at least an IP strategy in hand and that you're actually thinking about sort of greater marketplace of, of what you're doing. Um, they're also, and this is a harder statistic to figure out, but it's, you know, they're also, you know, quite often used uh, defensively in the sense of just you've staked your plot in the ground and it wards people off. It's just a, it's, it's a fence for you to keep people away either through litigation or just market competition, of course, but there's no real good data on that, right? Because I can't, no one's going around to every single patent owner or every single person, I guess, and saying, hey, have you ever 
changed your strategy based on seeing uh, such and such patent. But that's a big part of it. Really, the way I see it, though, for most software companies, they're primarily there as useful to show that you have, again, contemplated an IP strategy. So it's, you know, just a general legal and business strategy and are doing that hand in hand and also are using them again with understanding that it's building up assets that you can use to secure lending, secure financing, whatever you need to do, which can be very difficult when you're basically starting from nothing with just an idea, right? And trying to get to market because uh, those ideas can be hard as hell to implement. Which is super strange, by the way, because shouldn't the implementation of the idea be the thing that gets... It's like either... Like I should be able, if you're a VC, I should be able to either show you a UML diagram of my idea or show you the implementation of that idea. I don't understand why, like showing them the software patent would be some sort of positive signal towards raising money. Oh, sure. So, I mean, well, understand that when you are granted a patent, you have to have, it has to be able to be implemented from what you disclose and what you provide. So... It's not a UML diagram, <laughs> for sure. It's not a UML diagram. Still have nightmares from my <laughs> undergrad days doing UML diagram courses. But it's definitely going to be explanatory enough to show that, like, okay, this the system in place, in theory, granted. And, you know, the cases that don't do that are the ones that often make uh, headlines, right? And, there, I mean, and you know, as someone who works in doing uh, post-grant patent stuff as well, you know, the one, the pens that we tend to go after tend to be the ones that are, you know, boil down to, I, you know, I use a computer and I don't know, people smiles and it gives me this output or something. I don't know. And like without further right. explanation and you do have that too. And you know, those are, it's problematic. It's hard, but those in theory at least are, are challenged and weeded out. Yeah. I mean, well, the, I think the most problematic type of software patents are, are again, the ones that people hear about. So do you remember the podcasting patent? Yes, yeah, I'm, I uh, followed that one. That was crazy. Yeah, and I mean, I think also you have to consider that the way that the patent office works, there's basically eras of patent prosecution. And a lot of the real bad patents that people see and, and makes them and that make them loathe patents in general uh, tend to be out of this dot-com era where basically anything for, I don't want to say anything, but a lot of problematic patents came out of the office during that era when it was just being understood that you could get IP protection around software implementations. Oh, oh so I could submit like, I am making an ad network based on a relational database. And it's like, all right, I'll rubber stamp that patent. Yeah, I mean, and that there was an era where it, was, it almost felt like that. I don't, I don't want to like overly simplify it because it, they clearly all went through prosecution and back and forth. And you can even, even as, you know, just a, a, a public person, you can just go out there and go onto the USPTO site and actually look at the, the history of prosecution of a granted patent that's been published and, and see what the back and forth between the, the patent office was and the, the patent prosecutor or the occasionally the random inventor themselves and see like how, how they were arguing, what they were arguing about and what they uh, were saying, like how they were saying what meant what basically. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, and that's also gets to this other issue that a lot of applications go to the USPTO. People like to crap all over the patent office saying, oh, they don't know what they're doing. These people are idiots. But I mean, Look, they don't have a whole lot of time to review all of the patents that are 
given to them on their docket. And they you can't be a subject matter expert in literally every single thing out there and, and in every single domain space that's out there too. So a lot of times it's like, you know, to their credit, it can be really challenging to look over some of these patent applications and, and spot what is artful crafting and what is legitimate innovation being presented for protection. But, you know, within the scope of software patents, I mean, there's, there are arguments to be made about how broad software patents should be. And I, I think that's going to be, that, that's been a continuous issue. Look, we are just had years of uncertainty and in what's called a, you know, 101 or Alice related uh, law, which, and, and Alice was a Supreme court case that came down a few years ago that sort of put the kibosh on a whole bunch of software related and business method patents. But Unfortunately, the way that it did that, it made it really unclear what what was patentable and what wasn't patentable. Uh, there's a lot of hand waving involved in if it's you know this is an abstract concept, but this other thing, but if it's abstract, then this thing makes it not abstract, and then uh, how that actually works out in reality, because you know in, in theory anything involving software can be abstract. So and clearly there are some things that you there are innovations in software development that are worthy of protection or a patent that are, you know, novel and took investment and time to develop and get to where they're at uh, that you want to, and that are easily reproducible once they're put out there that you want to make sure that the the person who, or the entity that um, spent the time putting it together can recoup some of that. That's my argument, I guess, for, for software patents. And I'm not going to sit here and, and sort of bullshit you or the audience that there is not room for reform or change in the, patent law sphere and that it isn't kind of a moving target at the moment of where that balance is. It's, it's hard, but certainly our patent system for other domains and other technologies has been really critical in fostering the development that we've had. There has to be a balance found at some point and hopefully we'll get there. And I mean, I would say, so like there are software innovations for sure. Like you think about page rank, if Larry page I mean, maybe he did file a patent on PageRank, but like PageRank, that's a decisively innovative approach to search, probably worth getting a patent on. Right. Yeah. So, and and that's also sort of a, and that seems kind of abstract too, right? (laughs) It's not. (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. Because PageRank has been abstracted. Like, you know, people use PageRank-like methodologies for Netflix, you know, in in Netflix or or to to measure the, you know, which friends to recommend to you, like based off of PageRank-like methodology. So if if Larry Page patents PageRank for web pages, does that mean that you know, Facebook can't apply it to people, you know, I, I don't know, but it, well, exactly. There's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a question of um, approaching data really. And that's really all software is without getting too much into the, <laughs> to a functional programming <laughs> zealotry, but it's how you approach data and it's, that can always be abstracted. And your point is that this is just another, it's an ambiguous protective measure that under some circumstances, it's going to be useful to have this patent in your hand, whether it's to assess the value of a company. Like I'm Google, I have the patent to page rank. Nobody has assailed that patent yet. So, you know, it's, it's hard to quantify what is the value of having a patent on this, but it is at least some degree of legal moat that should increase my valuation as Google. 
Right. And that's, I mean, I think that's exactly where the crux of it is because I mean, ideally, like, I don't like the thought of people going out and suing everyone and anyone for infringing every single patent. I mean, for, I, for infringing on the podcast. Patent. Yeah. Like, I mean, or even if you have a really solid patent and just, you know, just starting up litigation all over the place, I, I would prefer a situation where, you know, there's collaboration and, you know, cooperation and licensing. Uh, that's, that's why I primarily work in pan prosecution and not patent litigation, really. So, you know, the, the value in my mind of, of a patent is really more of sort of proving a mindset and also um, providing at least some indicator of valuation in your, in your company or your project that, you know, hey, look, the USPTO has said that these are actually really novel and they've done searches and looked at other stuff and technology that's out there. And this is actually sort of a new thing we're doing. And it's really cool. And that's sort of the value in it, in, in my mind. And I mean, certainly, if you ask other patent prosecutors and other attorneys and, or anyone else, you might get a, a million different opinions on it. So I, I don't want to sort of present that like this is the standard thought in the legal community. I wouldn't be surprised if I'm very much a minority <laughs> on my outlook on yeah. this. Okay. So t- switching topics, I want to talk to you. Uh, there's a couple more topics I want to get to you. So so antitrust is one of them. So we've evaluated the Microsoft case. We've done a couple shows about the Microsoft case back in the 90s. Sure. Have you looked at that case much? Do you Are you familiar with the history? I'm very loosely familiar with it. So like antitrust law is not, is so far removed from my own day-to-day practice that it's hard for me to say a whole lot about it with any... All right. Well, you're familiar enough to pontificate. Yeah. I can... All I want is is a pontificator. Pontificating interlocutor. So uh, there's a book, I think it was called like, what is it? War 3.0 or World War... Th- no, what was it? Some, some book about like the, the case against Microsoft. It was really interesting. It's on Audible. I don't remember what it is, but it was all about this case. And one thing I took away from this case is it seemed like the case was as, as much rooted in precedent like actually it wasn't very rooted in precedent because it was kind of a, a weird new thing like dominance over the operating system platform does that mean you have dominance over like dominance over a specific operating system platform that you developed does that mean you have dominance over computing as a whole and it felt like from my reading of it that this was a, hu- a hugely subjective pursuit of of microsoft and it, looking at it in a retrospect, I'm like, was this actually good like for the public? Because it looks like basically Microsoft was pursued and it just beaten into the ground and kind of witch hunted and scapegoated, frankly. I feel like you know maybe Bill Gates presented himself in a way that made it easy to scapegoat him because you know he kind of came off as hostile and you know superior and- there's also a certain amount of arrogance on the other side of that i from from what i have read of it too so david boys the legal side of it yeah so if i feel like there's a parallel thing happening with facebook it's like facebook did they really do anything wrong like they were just trying to figure out what their business model was and then they exposed this data because they were trying to do it to become a platform and then oops they switched to becoming an ad company and then like looking backwards exposing that data looks really bad and it's like but did they do anything legally wrong it's super ambiguous but the way that they're attacked is like oh this is unanimously a bad thing facebook has unanimously done a bad thing and i look at the i look back and i try to put myself in the shoes unbiased observer for the microsoft case i'm like did microsoft really do anything wrong 
Right. I mean, I think that that's sort of just another, it's really just another case of law and, and technology and sort of the evolving global markets um, having a hard time staying at parity with each other, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, like if you're engaged in what would otherwise be normal business endeavors to protect your business or uh, advance your, your business, um, but you have such consumer uptake that you're basically in a monopolistic or quasi-monopolistic situation, all of a sudden, and maybe even without you knowing it, you you have this new expectations on your behavior that can be completely at odds with how they were before, right? So it's another one of those sort of lawyer answers where it's like, it depends. Those are just really hard questions and it depends from fa- based on the facts of each case. I will say that the the sort of outlook on, or sort of the the sort of popular news and headlines regarding the whole Facebook scandal and, and use or misuse of data and you know, wrapping back up, sort of circling back to the GDPR discussion earlier of a you know, lack of transparency of what they're doing with that data or real transparency, you know, just putting something in fine print isn't really transparent is interesting because it's because, yeah, you're right. I mean, Facebook is sort of becoming, if not, they've already become another Microsoft where, you know, they have, sort of this market power, whether they realize it or not, and new expectations are going to be put on them to utilize it in certain ways. So how that will shake out? I don't know. I mean, that's going to be, again, a lot of it's going to have to do with, I think, different areas of law converging. It's not going to be just purely an antitrust thing. It's going to, and I don't know that antitrust law is really the solution to the things that we're worried about now in this day and age, because uh, the things that we're really worried about, so personal sovereignty of data and ability to express and communicate with each other and stuff like that. And yeah, I was just mentioned net neutrality and bringing up, you know, various other influences on how we communicate, but without getting into that, but th- these are things that aren't necessarily directly antitrust issues. It's more just systems, how the, the systems we have in place are administered, I suppose. Well, you know, what I'll say is if you're talking about ways to punish a technology company, I am much more in favor of fining the technology company than enforcing some crazy, like, breaking up of the company, because that's just, like, super disruptive, and it potentially hurts the consumer. That hasn't happened since the the AT&T days. I mean, uh, Microsoft wasn't broken up into a million different companies. Absolutely. That's right. And and frankly, yeah, it's it's not feasible these days, really, because a lot of companies are like these... Well, Alphabet. Alphabet did it. But they did, they did they did it to their to themselves. Right? Yeah, exactly. They weren't. I mean, they, no one came down on them and said, "Hey, you're no you're no longer Google. You're now all of this other stuff." But you know, even then, you know, it's not really feasible to break up a lot of these companies because so many operations intersect within the companies. You know, a lot a lot of these major companies are sort of these monolithic entities. So. Yeah, I, I, the, the breaking up a, a company, breaking up a monopoly, so into a bunch of different smaller companies, I don't, I don't think is a, a feasible approach anymore. But uh, who knows? Maybe we'll hit a point at some, <laughs> some time where that, where, where that has to be done because Facebook becomes the internet of <laughs> all of Southeast Asia or something. <laughs> right. So I, I'm not going to say that's not a possible future, but. Isn't that already happening? Like, isn't the like? There are a lot of people that think Facebook is the internet. Oh well, yeah, no, that's that's what I mean. So I, mean, I just mean I, the the breaking up of the company. I I think isn't something right. that's completely 
impossible to happen, but I, there are strong pressures against it for a lot of very good reasons. I think the better bet is to, and and this is sort of like you know pie in the sky, high high level discussion. There's no real legal basis for this, but you know think about the specifically fostering competition against these monolithic companies and finding ways of incentivizing com- uh, competition and the consumer uptake in the same sphere so that they're forced to compete against other companies rather than breaking up the monopoly, just turning it into uh, a multi-actor situation. I don't know what that would be. And then, and I'm sure the second, even <laughs> right now, people listening, I'm sure there's a, a selection of people who are saying, no, that, that's way too much government involvement. So, um, you know, that has its own host of other issues too. So yeah, who knows? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a hard problem to solve though. One would hope that our legislators are contemplating it and it's something on the mind of uh, our judiciary but who knows speaking of which when are we going to get lawmakers that have us like i was looking at the some of these questions that they asked mark zuckerberg <laughs> yeah when is that going to change <laughs> are they going to rotate out eventually like yeah well I mean, i've been most of the news i've been reading lately covering elections at various levels have been talking about how there's so many more engineers and scientists and right. um, people of various backgrounds uh, minorities and women as well you know entering putting their hat into the political arena finally which is uh, oh it's going to get it, so very much better than it used to be and yeah i i mean i honestly hope so i i, I would be so much happier to pay my taxes if if there <laughs> were like people who understood technology i'm like look take my money if you're going to apply it to intelligent decisions and technology that is great if you're going to apply it to like bureaucracy like, can right. I keep my money, please? Like, well, and just have an awareness of how. It just needs to see an awareness of how legislation you're discussing might impact the actual technologies that you're uh, talking about. Because this is just like the GDPR thing when it comes to uh, reporting out, you know, uh, reporting out the logic of a decision. Right? If you think about it with any sort of understanding of the technology that you're 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 regulating, that is kind of a kind of crazy. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, today, that's, a lot of that doesn't really get... I don't have a lot of confidence that that's sort of um, happening in the current state of the, the legislature. But I don't know, maybe we just need more patent prosecutors in, in office. <laughs> so, All right. Yeah. Michael Kesselman for Congress. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Give me a few years first. So, self-driving cars. This is going to be a glacier-sized series of questions around the intersection of law and software. So I know you've thought a little bit about this. What are the big legal questions that we're going to have to answer around self-driving cars? Yeah. And I think you had mentioned at some point, maybe in Slack chat or or elsewhere about sort of machine learning coming into this as well, because really it's all part of the same, it's all part of the whole kit and caboodle of machine learning and AI development. I actually really love the self-driving car sector. I think it's really cool. Um, Being here in Boston too, which is, to your listeners, that's where I am located. You know, we have a lot of companies doing really cool self-driving car testing right here in the city uh, over in Seaport District. The big issues, I think, are going to be more on the, the liability side, right? You know, who's liable for accidents? How How is that liability uh, divvied up? If I own a self-driving car and you hit someone, am I the owner liable for that? Is the manufacturer of the car liable for it? Did they, if they license their AV software from someone else is is that person liable for it? And frankly, all this sort of will probably get sussed out in contracts and indemnification clauses and warranties and all that nonsense. But 
I think really what it's going to come down to is uh, it's basically going to be sorted out by insurance companies. Um, that's what it, how it's going to sort out for better or for worse, because, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be one insurer eating the cost because another insurer, you know, won the argument of who's responsible for this accident. And I think that, uh, you know, uh, states and communities are really going to have to, as they're drafting regulations, and, you know, a lot of places are still drafting the regulations. Um, they have some on the books. In, here in Boston, we have a, uh, I forget what it's called precisely, but we have a, a committee devoted to this entire sort of uh, regulatory sphere of self-driving cars and how it needs to be sorted out. And then just the federal side of it as well. But okay, you, there's a committee in Boston that is devoted to self-driving car policy? Yeah, I, I, I'll have to look it up and I can send it send you a link to them for the show notes. But yeah, they are focused on helping deciding what our regulations need to be for self-driving cars. I got to interview somebody from that committee if possible. <laughs> that would say that would be a great show. I'll look it up after chat and pass it along to you. That That is one of the arenas where it's a more apparent than probably anywhere else that you need to have, you know, your policymakers have a technical understanding to some degree, at least of the subject matter technology um, and also a technical understanding of the, the subject matter law and how stakeholders interact because you have, you have a, such a crazy convergence of different interests. I mean, you, you have pedestrian interests and just, you know, and look, you even have this issue, you know, this, have, this is part of the discussion here in Boston where, you know, community segregation, right? You know, ba- you know based on access to transportation and income, if you have a whole AV fleet, are all of a sudden all the all of our tax dollars are going to go to supporting some sort of uh, state based AV fleet that allows people to, you know, get a car anywhere, um, rather than you know our trains and busing system? And is that going to be to the detriment of poor communities over wealthier communities? And how how you balance those interests too? And you know, people have a right to mobility and transportation. You know, how how does that right interact with the very real desire and interest of, you know, take of removing control of multi-ton chunks of metal going down the street at high speed from a human and transferring control of that to a, an automated system that um, is even today basically safer in every regard, <laughs> but still right. scarier uh, to a lot of people. So, I think at the end of the day, it's it's really going to be the insurance companies that end up driving a lot of the regulation on that front. Why is that? Why why insurance companies? One, it's a question of power and resources and ability to interact with policymakers. And also, again, it's sort of who's ultimately going to be footing the cost for a lot of, a lot of accidents and incidents in this regard, because your average person is not there's going to be some sort of insurance policy that contemplates ownership of, an, of a self-driving vehicle and how liability is sorted out in an accident for your own personal car insurance. And, you know, that and how that policy is drafted is going to have to comply with regulations. And obviously, they're going to want to have an influence on how those, uh, you know, regulations are implemented because, again, it's going to be their pocketbook, uh, pocketbooks hit. So I think it's it's easy to sort of hear that and make it become very nervous, right? Um, it's not like insurance companies have a, a fantastic reputation, but this might be 
one of the situations where it actually sort of makes sense to sort of leverage their interaction and, and, and stake in the game to get them on board with policies at the right up brass tacks rather than sort of trying to do hot fixes, you know, decades down the road. Well, this will, I bet this will also be one of these areas of amazing disruption in terms of improving the consumer experience. Because right now my experience with my insurance company is like, I, I mean, it's like my experience with the hotel industry or the taxi industry 10 years ago. It's sort of adversarial. It's like customer service is not really there. And, you know, as we've seen, these kinds of industries just get destroyed by the the new... Well, actually, the hotel industry definitely did not get destroyed by Airbnb. But, you know, in the taxi industry... Well, the taxi industry did get completely destroyed, but... Well, depending on the city you live in, it's there's a certain amount of sympathy that is there or not there. <laughs> That's true. Actually, I was in Copenhagen just now, and... There were no Ubers there. <laughs> it's weird. Oh, really? Like there was all taxis. I, d- I don't know why that is, but there was all taxis. They probably had a good taxi system before. I mean, uh, fr- frankly, in my experience, the the cities where the ta- the taxi industry has been hit the hardest are the cities where the taxi industry has been the most anti-consumer. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, you know, here in Boston, before uh, Uber and Lyft became as commonplace as they are now, and I was actually just reading a, a article that's posted to the Boston subreddit about how um, the, I think Boston is like second to San Francisco in, in Uber and Lyft usage or something. But yeah, part of that, like, you know, you're getting a taxi and half the time you, you'd be lucky if you could pay with credit card. And this is like right. five, six years ago. So it's not like credit cards were these novel, amazing things that just came out of nowhere and took them by surprise. I was in New York recently, actually, right before the meetup in Boston. I was in New York, and I got in a cab with my older brother. This is the first cab I had taken in, like, years. And we got in the cab, and it was a very short drive, maybe like a four or five-mile drive. And along the drive, this taxi driver just yelling. He's furious at people around him. At one point, we're in the middle of traffic, and he gets out of the car. He stops the car, gets out of the car, and begins threatening another driver that's nearby. And we're like, "What?" We're sitting in the backseat. We're like, "Do we get out here?" And I, and I was just like, "Are you supposed to join in and also help threaten him, or are you supposed to just right. wait?" <laughs> well, but it just makes you realize, like, oh my gosh, you know all of the good drivers switch to Uber because they're not afraid to be raided. <laughs> but this guy is like, now there's like this adverse selection. So well, it's I mean, like, the, it's uh, crazy too. It's part of this whole like gig economy that's developing, uh, which is super interesting to me because, you know, I'm, I recently bought a home and the, my lending agent actually, he would, when he had to drive down to go through documents with me, um, cause he lived out of the city, he would actually throw up his Uber and Lyft tags and give people rides along the way because he was commuting anyway. So why not, you know, drive, why not make a few bucks and transport people on the way, which is, you know, that's yeah. super cool that that's possible. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's, it's a, a super cool way of just a, a approaching that service. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. I mean, and then, you know, again, with sort of circling back to the self-driving car discussion, it's, it's this very new industry and market that just sort of came about in the last, you know, really three years. <laughs> it's very, 
serious risk of itself being replaced and um, obsoleted within the next right three to five years. So it's right. kind of crazy the pace of these things. It is crazy. I will be curious to see how big the moat of the fleet operators is. But that's I, I'm sure that's a question for a different show. Okay, well, this has been awesome. I mean, we covered a lot of ground here. I'm sure we could have covered a lot more. I need to ask you about ICOs oh. at some point in the future. <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to talk about I, I mean, again, I'm not like a securities lawyer, but I'd be happy to chat about ICOs at some point within, or at least blockchain companies <laughs> generally. Right. Okay, well, more to explore in the future, but we should wrap this up. Micah, it's been really great having you on the show. Yeah, it's been great being on the show. Thanks so much, Jeff. Wow. 